Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks of the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, everybody say he came to himself. When he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? And I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and, bring, and put a, a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Jesus, for what it is that you have planned for this service today. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to focus. God, that our hearts and our spirits and our minds will be brought into alignment with what it is that you have planned to accomplish in this service today. Lord, prepare our hearts and minds, God, to receive it. And everybody say amen. Amen. I need y'all to help me today. I plan to cast a very wide net, and I need y'all to help me preach. If you're going to help me preach, say amen. amen. All right, here we go. Merriam-Webster's free online collegiate dictionary defines the word identity as the individual characteristics by which a person or thing is recognized. The Oxford Reference Dictionary, purchased for $18.95 from the LSU Union Bookstore, Longer, many years ago, more than I care to recount, it now sits on the top shelf of the often cluttered bookcase in our living room. It defines identity as the condition of being a specified person or thing, individuality, personality. I looked at six different dictionaries, some of them online, some of them made out of actual paper, and all defined identity just a little bit the same and just a little bit differently. Wikipedia told me that in the field of cognitive psychology, the term identity refers to the capacity for self-reflection and the awareness of self. But overall, it was a frustrating exercise because what I was looking for was a, an authoritative definition. I was getting ready to preach a sermon, and I needed something authoritative, something solid, something clear. And it just didn't seem to be one clear, right, straightforward answer to the question of what is identity. So apparently, when it comes to clearly defining identity, we've just decided that we kind of know what it is, we've sort of got an idea, and we seem pretty comfortable with a 
This is pretty much what identity is approach. So at the risk of oversimplification today, let me give you the Jason Cooper working definition for what identity is. Identity is the means by which we define ourselves. It's our ability to perceive ourselves as individuals. It's that awareness of the characteristics that set me apart from everybody else. Identity is just a difficult topic. So in true Pastor Glenn Murphy fashion today, I offer you the following quotes to consider. Benjamin Franklin said there are three things that are extremely hard. Steel, a diamond, and to know oneself. Josh Billings said it's not only the most difficult thing to know oneself, but the most inconvenient. One of my favorite authors, Orson Scott Card, in his novel Ender's Game said, perhaps it's impossible to wear an identity without becoming what you pretend And finally, Alice from Alice in Wonderland said, I wonder if I've been changed in the night. Let me think. Was I the same when I got up this morning? I almost think I can remember feeling a little different. But if I'm not the same, the next question is, who in the world am I? Ah, that's the great puzzle. And yes, it is. That is the great puzzle because whenever I talk about my identity, I talk about who I am. And right there, folks, we are already in very deep water because that's a question that mankind has been trying to answer for as long as we've been on the planet. Who am I? It's one of the great existential questions posed by philosophy, if not the great existential question. Men like Socrates and Plato, Aristotle, Immanuel Kant, John Locke, Friedrich Nietzsche, John Paul Sartre, Martin Heidegger, just to name a few, all did their best to use human logic and human reasoning to establish this framework by which people could understand their identity. If we can know who we are, if we can grasp our real identity, if we can somehow accurately and totally perceive the self, then we can derive our purpose. And if we can know our true purpose, then we can derive our destination. And if we can figure out where we're going, then we can try to muddle through and figure out how to get there. But it's not only a philosophical subject, because the search for identity is also uh, the point of many great works of literature. The Odyssey, the Iliad, Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet and Macbeth, Steinbeck, Hemingway, Faulkner, all writers who tried their best to use their words, appealing to the emotions of their audience, trying to form this emotional connection between their reader and the characters they portray while they're on some great quest for identity. The question of who am I abounds in literature. But listen to me, as great as the accomplishments of those great philosophers and writers may be, they will always come up short in their pursuit to define identity. When they attempt to tell you how to reason your way into understanding who you are and your true place in this world, when they attempt to tug at your heartstrings and make you feel in an emotional connection to characters, 
They will always fall short and they will always miss the mark in that they neglect the spiritual side of man's existence. The philosophers and the writers and the thinkers are always going to leave you wanting, always off the mark. You see, logic alone won't get you there and emotion alone won't get you there because man is not just brain and man is not just emotion. At some point, your spirit has to be satisfied. Ultimately, the question of identity, ultimately, the question of who am I is a spiritual question. And the establishment of identity is a spiritual issue. I know y'all are listening and that's fine. Just hang with me for a little while. We're getting there. Our identity, that set of characteristics by which we are known and recognized must be, must be established divinely, eternally, authoritatively by the word of God. God gives us examples in his word and shows us the role that he must play in any true, valid, worthwhile discovering of our identity. Let me go through these with you. Abraham was an idol worshiper. He was called out of a land full of idol worshipers to serve an invisible God. Abraham often struggled with understanding God's promise and struggled with obeying God's direction. And he had a hard time waiting on God's timing. But God planned an identity for Abraham that made him the father of a nation and caused him to be called a friend of God. Jacob, his name literally means deceiver or supplanter, but he had this encounter with God one night, and God gave him a new name and a new identity and said, you're no longer going to be known as a supplanter, but I'm going to call you Israel, one who strives with God. Moses was raised as an Egyptian. He spent 40 years living as an outcast in exile, but God called to him out of a burning bush and gave him a new identity. You're not an outcast, you're not in exile, and you're certainly not an Egyptian. I'm going to make you a leader, Moses. I'm going to make you a deliverer for millions of people living in bondage. I am going to establish your identity. David. Didn't look like much whenever he showed up in the valley of Elah that day. Just a little stripling of a shepherd boy facing off against a warrior giant. David went on in his life and at times he was a liar. At times he was immoral. And one time he even stooped so low to murder an honorable man to cover up his own sin. But by God's mercy, David's identity is not one of a liar. And it's not one of an immoral man. It's not one of a murderer. David's identity is established as one of Israel's greatest kings. And he was called a man after God's own heart. Peter. We know him as a coarse and impulsive, rowdy sailor. Probably talked like a sailor. He denied even knowing Jesus on more than one occasion. But God worked on Peter and changed his identity. Because whenever we think of Peter, we think of a wave walker. We think of a miracle worker. And we think of an incredible preacher of the gospel. 
all examples given throughout Scripture, and there are many more, but it's God saying to us, this is how you do it. You want to find your identity? You want to know who you are? Well, it starts with me, and it ends with me. If you want to find yourself, find me. Follow me. See, I'm your creator. I knew you before you were even born. I looked down through eternity and shaped you, designed you, planned you before you were even conceived. So I alone can establish that identity, that sense of self that you've been looking for. And it will be an identity that is true and right and fulfilling. God tells us in his word who we are. I'm going to keep beating on this point for a little while. Because all of us have an identity that originates in sin and separation from God. Romans chapter 3 verse 23, we know the scripture well. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified. By the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. God has given us a new identity for all of those who have been born into the kingdom. Who have been covered by his blood and repentance. Who have been buried in water baptism in his name and resurrected with him through the infilling of the Spirit. Now his word has firmly established for us a new identity. I know my voice is struggling today. Y'all just bear with me. In John 1 and 12, he says, you are God's child. In John 15 and 15, he says, you are Christ's friend. In 1 Corinthians 12, 27, he says, you are a member of Christ's body. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says, you are chosen before the creation of the world. Ephesians 1 and 8 and Colossians 1 and 14 say that you are forgiven. Acts 1 and 8 says you are a personal witness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20 says that you are a minister of reconciliation. Ephesians 2 and 22 says that you are a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Colossians 3 and 12 says that you are chosen and you are dearly loved. Matthew 5 and 14 says that you are a light in the world. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 says that you are the righteousness of God. Colossians 1 and 13 says that you were delivered. 2 Corinthians 5 says you're a new creation. 1 Peter 1 23 says that you're born again. 1 John 5 says that you are victorious. <laughs> Romans chapter 8 says that you are more than a conqueror. 
So you have an identity. And it is a great identity. It is an eternally established identity. An identity designed by the almighty God. And those individual characteristics by which you are recognized are plainly written and forever established in God's word. And it's better than anything philosophy can give you. It's better than anything that you will find in literature. This is an identity that God has written for you. But there's a problem. Everybody say there's a problem. It's called identity theft. Since 2006, the Federal Trade Commission, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, and the U.S. Department of Justice have all released reports indicating the widespread nature of what has now become the number one crime in the world, even surpassing that of illegal drug trafficking. Some estimates say that every year, as many as 10 million Americans are victims of identity theft. That's one person every 19 minutes. The Aberdeen Group estimates that identity theft costs businesses worldwide over $220 billion a year. The average monetary cost for a single individual to recover from identity theft is $8,000. And the average time it takes to resolve all of the issues related to a stolen identity lays waste to 330 work hours. Identity theft a serious problem in our world. It's a drain on resources. It's a stealer of time. It creates havoc and chaos in the lives of its victims. It causes worry. It'll make you lose sleep at night. It'll cause you to lose focus in the day. I thought about taking a poll this morning. How many here in the house today have been a victim of identity theft? looking at one we dealt with it but as problematic as burdensome as worrisome as draining as the crime of identity theft can be even more tragic and more devastating is the rampant spiritual identity theft taking place in the lives of God's people Because even though God's word clearly establishes our identity, there are people, God's people, sons and daughters of the Most High who are living lives of defeat, confusion, and doubt. I'm mad this morning because people's identity has been stolen. Our people are living depressed and anxious and worried and fearful. Their joy is gone. Their passions are gone. Their energy is gone. Their convictions are gone. Their purpose is gone. Their dreams are gone. Their identities that God established as powerful, victorious, redeemed children have been stolen. It's almost a byproduct of the world we live in. It's just the work of the devil. This world system has been designed in such a way that it will strip 
the identity from anything that's godly. See, success isn't measured in this world by things that matter. Things like anointing, spiritual passion, faithfulness, obedience, submission. The world does not like that identity because that identity brings conviction and accountability. So instead, the world offers you a twisted version of success. Wealth, where your worth as an individual is judged by your material possessions or lack thereof. Fame, where your worth as an individual is based on who you know and who knows you. Power and influence, where your worth as an individual is based on who and what you control. And this world wants you to feel like a failure if you don't change your identity to match its own. Look like us. Talk like us. Act like us. Go the places we go. Do the things that we do. Watch the same things we watch. Read the same things we read. Know what we know. Be like us. Take on our identity. Define yourself like we do. Be who we say you are or you're nothing. You're a nobody. You're a failure. You're worthless. But God never intended for his children to have an identity that is based in this world. This world will pass away, but God has given you an identity that is eternal. Y'all sit down, sit down, listen to me. You don't need the wealth of this world to have an identity because the God you serve makes his streets out of gold and his gates out of pearl and he decorates the walls with every precious stone. You don't need the fame of this world to have an identity. Somebody listen to me today. Your heavenly father knows you. He knew you before you were born. He, he's numbered the hairs on your head. Or lack thereof for some of you. But you don't need that. You don't need the power and influence of this world to have an identity. To answer the question of who am I? Get it. Wrap your brain around who lives inside of you. What more power and influence could you desire? Christ lives in you, and he controls it all. Ladies and gentlemen, my identity will not be established by this world, and I refuse to let it be taken by this world. My identity comes from God. minutes left now I can preach my sermon I need to talk to some people in the house today because God's got your number he's been talking to me about you for months waking me up at 4 o'clock 4.30 in the morning he won't talk to me between 7 o'clock in the morning and 10 o'clock at night so I've had enough of you people y'all got to get this today
It's time for somebody to wake up. It's time for some powerful, potential-filled, anointed sons and daughters to have a come-to-yourself moment. The prodigal son was royalty. Royalty. But he was pulled away by this world, enticed by what it had to offer. And whenever it all fell apart, he found himself in the field with the pigs. So hungry that even the garbage looked good. Y'all understand his true predicament at that moment. Even though he was royalty by blood, a son of the father, a member of the household, but he is living with pigs and wanting to eat garbage. So far beneath his true identity. Somebody would look at him, pass by, and they wouldn't be able to tell who he really was. Because he didn't look like himself. And he wasn't acting like himself. But the Bible says that he had a moment where he came to himself. What am I doing here? Verse 17, he says, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I'm out here perishing with hunger. How I'm living makes no sense. Living this way, forgive me, Casey, is stupid. It's stupid to keep living like I'm living. Why am I living in this mess? Dirty, unfulfilled, miserable, depressed, feeling like a failure, feeling like a nobody, feeling like I've got to do this life all on my own. Why am I living this way when I've got a father who has more than enough to eat, a safe place for me to rest, a father who is rich in mercy, So let's turn it around. That's where it gets uncomfortable. Why are you living that way, child of God? Dirty. With the mess of this world all over you. Unfulfilled. Trying to find something worthwhile that the, in the garbage that this world has got to offer. Trying to find something worthwhile in this garbage that will satisfy you in that time of need. When what you're really hungry for is in the Father's house. Why are you living miserable and depressed? Get your identity straight today and get back to Daddy's house. Why are you living like a failure and a nobody? Wake up. It's time to come to yourself. It's time to realize who you are as royalty, a child of God, a child of the king. Now, Jason, you don't know where I've been living lately. You don't know what I've been through. The mistakes I've made, the people I've hurt, the damage I've done. 
I hear what you're saying, Randy. It's such a long way back. I just don't think I can make the trip. I don't have it in me. I could never, I could never have what I used to have. I could never be what I used to be. See, you're forgetting the end of the story. Because the son expected to return to his father's house in a lower position. He said, I will arise and go to my father and I'll say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. See, that's the world talking. That's the language of your flesh talking. It says you're dirty, you're washed up. You're a failure, you're a nothing. The world says that you don't deserve restoration. Your flesh says that you don't deserve compassion and forgiveness. Lord, help me right now. Your flesh will tell you today that even if he does take you back, you won't ever be what you were before. See, that's not how the Father operates. He sees through all of the stuff of this world that you've got hanging on you, the stench of this world's garbage doesn't throw him off for a minute. And you might look a little worse for wear today because of where you've been living, but I promise you, he recognizes you. The Father knows who you really are, and restoration only takes a moment. One moment in the Father's embrace is all it takes. A royal robe placed on him, a ring placed on his finger, and back in his rightful place in an instant. Exactly what he was before. I told y'all I was casting a wide net today. I believe God wants to wants somebody in this house to hear a word about restoration. But I think he also wants somebody to hear a word of revelation today. 1 Peter 2 and 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. The word in the Greek means beyond usual, special. We hear peculiar today. We think weird. That's not what it's about. Saying there's something beyond usual about you. You're special. I want to introduce you guys to somebody today. I'd like for you to meet a man by the name of B.J. Penn. Born December 13th, 1978. He's 5'9", 168 pounds, and he will take your head off. B.J. picked up jiu-jitsu at warp speed whenever he began training at the age of 17. Three years later... B.J. Penn became the first American to win a gold medal at the World Jiu-Jitsu Championships at the black belt level. But he didn't always apply himself as diligently as he could have whenever it came to training or to diet. But he just had this natural talent as a martial artist. He had early and easy wins in mixed martial arts competitions, and it caused people to call him the prodigy. That's what they called him, B.J. the prodigy Penn. From his entry 
into mixed martial arts premier fighting venue, the UFC, Penn was known as a gatekeeper. That's what the commentators and the critics called him, a gatekeeper. Good, skilled, but not quite a champion. Not at that level. But if you wanted to get to the champ, at some point you were going to have to cross paths with B.J. Penn. But Penn's story doesn't end there, thankfully. He does not disappear into obscurity. See, he had this come-to-himself moment on his 28th birthday, December 13, 2006. In a later interview, Penn described his thoughts that day. Should sound familiar to you. He said, what am Why am I living this way? Why am I wasting my time? But all of this natural talent... All of these skills that have come so easily to me. I don't hardly train. I don't eat right. What kind of fighter could I be? Why not get up and try? I don't want to be the guy to look back and say, I could have done this and I could have done that. I want to be the guy to know if I could have or if I couldn't have. Penn hired the best trainers and nutritionists he could afford, completely redesigned his approach to training and fight preparation, and in 2007, B.J. Penn became the UFC lightweight champion. He is, the, he is one of only two UFC fighters to have ever held more than two championship belts at one time. He was undefeated in professional lightweight fights for over eight years. Simultaneously, he was ranked number one in two and he is the only mixed martial arts fighter to have ever held that distinction at all. On December, or in December of 2009, there was a much-anticipated title defense fight between B.J. Penn and Diego Nightmare Sanchez. All of the pre-fight commentary gave Nightmare the edge. They said he was a better wrestler. They said he was a more potent striker. They said he could take a punch. They said he had better cardio. And a lot of people were betting that Nightmare Sanchez was the guy who would finally take out the champ. During his title defense against the number one contender, Penn showed that he was on a completely different skill level. The fight was finally stopped in the fifth round after the referee conferred with doctors ringside over the injuries to Sanchez. Sanchez's bottom lip was completely split open. His left eye was swollen shut, and he had a large cut above his left eyebrow that bled profusely and revealed his skull. Get that off of there. Nightmare had hardly touched the champ. It wasn't even a contest. What changed B.J. Penn from a gatekeeper into a champion? Penn realized that he was living beneath his true identity. Penn realized that he was living beneath what he was destined to be, what he was designed to be, and what he was equipped to be. We've got to realize the fullness of our identity and the fullness of our true calling because the Bible calls us a royal priesthood, a peculiar, a beyond usual, a special people. 
And there is nothing that is normal or second rate about any child of God. You have been designed, you have been gifted and equipped to be this extraordinary, powerful, potent, dangerous, anointed, victorious conqueror in God's kingdom. Not a whole lot of amens on that, so I hope you just believe it. What could you be? What could you be? If you just embrace the idea of who you really are in service to God and service to your fellow man. If you decided to just get up and try. I tell you what, Satan is absolutely terrified today. He's terrified of what you're going to do if you ever find out who you really are. If you ever get a handle on your real identity. Time's out, I'm done. Stand with me. I don't know what's going to happen here in a few minutes. I'm hoping that somebody will receive restoration today. I'm hoping that somebody will receive revelation today. I'm praying that somebody will get relocated spiritually. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes and listen. As I read to you this final piece from Mary Ann Williamson, she said it so well, I can't say it any better, I'm just going to read it. She said, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant gorgeous, talented, fabulous. But actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking yourself so that other people won't feel insecure around you we are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in every one of us. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear. Our presence automatically liberates others. I'm praying that there will be some liberation in this house today. I'm praying that somebody right now will begin to get a handle on who you really are and who God designs you to be. I'm praying that somebody will say, I know, God, that you've been talking to me, that you've got my number today, that it's a day of restoration, that it's a day of revelation, that it's a day where you finally, God, show me who I am and move me from where I've been living to the place that you have prepared for me. Oh, in Jesus' name, I'm going to ask Casey begin to play and sing. And I'm just going to open up these altars. I'm going to open up the altars to the prodigals, to the searchers. We're not going to wait long. Service has already been long. 
but we're going to move quickly. But the altar is open to all of the searchers, to all of the wanderers in the house, to all of the people that say, I've been living beneath my true identity. I've been living beneath my potential. I've been living beneath what God designed me to be. And I'm not going to have it that way anymore. Today, God, I've got to connect with you. Today, God, I've got to have you change something in me. I'm not going to leave this altar till you do it inside of my spirit, God. Would the rest of you come forward today and begin to pray with some people? Would you find a brother or a sister and lay hands on them and pray with them and help them? Oh, God. Oh, God. That's perfect, Casey. That's perfect. Come on, sing it.